We are ex-Overland, and over the past 10 years, my wife and I have established a business doing what we love. Throughout the last 10 years, we have built over 20 Overland vehicles that have taken us and our team around the world as we film our adventures. My name is Clay Croft, and I am the founder and CEO of ex-Overland. On this podcast, we take a deep dive beyond what the camera can capture to offer you as much insight into the world of Overland travel as possible. The X-Overland podcast is brought to you by Onyx Off-Road. To find the special places we're seeking at X-Overland, that next level trail, or that once-in-a-lifetime campsite, we often find ourselves far beyond the grid. With fully functional GPS capability, even when outside the range of cell phone coverage, Onyx allows us to get off the grid and confidently continue on our journey. Use the code XOverland to get 20% off your subscription today. Welcome, everybody, to the X Overland Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Lewis. With me today, of course, you know this guy, Clay Croft, and we have Matt Hopkins, SAR team member, Search and Rescue Gallatin County. Both Matt and Clay are on the Gallatin County Search and Rescue team, and that is what we're here to talk about today is Search and Rescue, um, how that applies to overlanders in particular, and to adventurers and outdoor enthusiasts in general. So the goal here today is to learn all we can about search and rescue from men who go after that and experience it on the daily. So uh, guys... Some, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes on the daily. Sometimes on the monthly, and we just turn the hourglass. Good job, Matt. Man, he's like... Matt's he's on it. He's on it. But that's, that's uh, you know, maybe speaks to his role. What is your role in search and rescue, Matt? Oh, my role in search and rescue uh, particularly falls under the Alpine team. I've worked with those guys since 2016 when I started with Gallatin County. And I'm also part of the Valley team, which is uh, the transition we did from the years of the sheriff's posse, which was a 501c3 that the Gallatin County Sheriff's Office had that was the basic ground team, snowmobiles, four-wheelers, etc. Um, that turned into what we call now the Valley, which is essentially the same thing. Uh, it's just all falls under the Gallatin County Sheriff's Office. Mm-hmm. And uh, are, are you in a leadership position with SAR, did Clay say? I am not. Uh, we just started a new, uh, a new style of... Uh, I would say organization last year where we have new lead roles, new command roles, new training officers, training roles, and et cetera. And uh, I opted out of that. I've got a lot of things going on that I, I really enjoy the core of what I've always done with search and rescue. And I just wasn't ready yet at that point to step into any kind of leadership role. Sure. Well, you mentioned something just a moment ago that you're an out on an Alpine team. That is correct. Yep. Yep. And just so our listeners understand, we are in Bozeman, Bozeman, Montana here, Gallatin County encompasses Bozeman um, and mountain, several mountain ranges within the county itself. So one of the things that makes our search and rescue situation and our recreational situation interesting is we do have such a wide variety of environments people can find themselves in. We have high alpine environments. We have swift water, whitewater rivers. We have... Um, extreme weather conditions, four seasons. So there, there's just a lot going on around here for people to find themselves in. Yep. Um, so, you know, I think that's worth, worth noting. Wilderness, yes. urban environments, like we have everything in, under the sun pretty much. We don't have a desert, but in the summer it's pretty hot. So I don't know. We've got about everything you could 
think of. Yeah, we're every bit of a high plains desert here. Um, <laughs> is uh, yeah, it definitely doesn't have the sand dunes or that 110 degree heat generally, but uh, the weather can change here pretty quick. Yeah, you get out to the western part of the valley on a day in the mid 90s, and things can get hot fast. Dehydration, heat stroke, all that kind of thing. For so. sure. Well, let's go back to introductions here, just so everyone knows who's who and what our backgrounds and experiences are with search and rescue and and all of this. So, Clay. Um, of course, our fans know you as Clay Croft, Oberlander and filmmaker. A lot of people may not know that you've been actively involved in search and rescue for how many years? Uh, I was having to think about that, but I think it was around 20, 2009, maybe, that I joined with the Gallatin County Search and Rescue, somewhere in there. Uh, so quite a bit. You know, I think yeah, it's over it's 15 like years now, somewhere in there. So maybe even sooner than that. Um, and, and I've had varying degrees of, um, like how involved I've been, you know, because obviously XO has been a very involved thing. So I would, when I was really young, when I first got started, man, I was on every single call I could go on. I wanted to be a part of the team. I had to, you know, the organization, if you want to call it that has gone through four probably major revisions in the 15 years that we it's about every five years something gets flopped over and remolded and um so i've been through all of those but when i was really young it was as much as i could on the what we would call the the posse or whatever so anything we we got called out for everything so you were backpacking in or looking for people or i wasn't part of any of the specialty teams and then probably 10 years ago i actually brought a drone over to search and rescue and showed them like, Hey, this is something that will probably be in our future. And I want to lead up with that. And that, and then as I've gotten really busy with XO and life there, that's kind of where I have now fell into. I'm no longer on the board or, or on the, the leadership team there. I was there for two years. I forget what position it was even. <laughs> it was yeah, just do you like, remember? I don't remember. I think it was before you were there. <laughs> it probably was. I think, yeah, you, you were more active before I showed up. I'm yeah, sure. so then, I mean, a lot of folks right now may not know, like on the general posse, who I am. But uh, I go now on all the, the drone calls and SRT calls with the sheriff's office. Which well, is like sense. the SWAT essentially. And the fact that you're, you're bringing your skills as a filmmaker in that case to search and rescue. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And your equipment, do you bring, do they have their own equipment? Or we do, you do now, but for years we brought, brought my own, mm-hmm. you know, and would up you, until like two years ago. Like it was, this, this isn't very, this is very recent that we have actually some really high end, awesome gear, you know, it, with the sheriff's office. So would you bring one of your trucks? Like, yeah. do they come into handy there? Yeah, we, we use XO trucks. I've used XO trucks throughout the years uh, on these calls. I use it for testing for, uh, oh, right. they, they're so, they, they suit search and rescue so well. Cause a lot of times you're out overnight, you're there for extended periods of time on long calls. Usually those are searches, not rescues, but, uh, yeah, so I, I use them like that and, stay tuned up that way by using those trucks. Okay. So it's a mixed bag. I use my own trucks too. Yeah. Like the Ram or whatever. 
on a call. Okay. But you can bring some of your own gear and yep. equipment then, obviously, and bring that to the table. Yeah. yeah. That's usually, it's usually how a lot of us respond. Um, the cache, uh, the search and rescue base, does is equipped with trucks, snowmobiles, and four-wheelers, but there are a lot of us members that have our own gear, our own four-wheelers, our own snowmobiles, and at times that does really help the response time mm-hmm. because we're already equipped and ready to go, and, and even the majority of us Alpine members usually have a pretty quick to go go bag that's ready to go with the gear that we know we're going to need mm-hmm. or the gear that will work along with the gear that we bring from Valley Base. Um, but there's been a handful of calls where if it wasn't for the few of us that had the stuff with us, the call wouldn't have gone as smoothly or as quickly just because of the timing of where it is in the canyon. Yeah, that that checks out because I'm thinking about how you know we have our own personal forms of recreation. So we might have a sled that we ride all the time and we know that it's serviced and it's ready to go and we have it all kitted out the way we need it to be. It's not like you're also having to go in and maintain something in a separate government hangar from your own. So it's just like, okay, I need a sled on this call. We're going or the four wheeler or whatever it is. But um, that way your own kits are probably better organized and ready to go than something. You you know it, You, you know it, you trust it. Uh, but the county stuff is good too. But a lot of times, this your personal stuff is even better. Yeah, I think the biggest difference is is that the county we we have even we've been buying newer snowmobiles. We have a few new pickup trucks now. Um, a lot of things have been improving over time as we've been using them more and more, and uh, it's been more frequent in the county that we've had to use all that stuff. But a lot of it's the timing. You know, I live out by Four Corners. If I was to go all the way to Valley Base to pick up the gear bag for an Alpine call that's at Practice Rock. That's going to put me another 45 minutes, maybe longer behind uh, the main, like a hasty response team that'll get there. So if there's certain things I know I can have with me that are light that I can get up to scene quicker and maybe get an anchor started or maybe get an extra rope hauled, you know, we're going to definitely do that. But we always coordinate with our command, uh, whoever's on command that day to make sure everybody's aware of what we're doing. Because first and foremost, uh, you know, above ropes and gear and snowmobiles, comms. Comms are number one that, you know, you have to make sure are top notch because that's what makes or breaks the whole call. Hmm. Okay. 100% communication, okay. everything. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt, Matt, how long have you been involved with search and rescue then? Clay said around 15 years in your experience. So yeah, I started with Gallatin County in 2016, but I was previously with Beaverhead County over in Dillon, Montana for about two years before that, but two very different demographics in the, uh, in the uh, SAR world, essentially, you've got a lot of hunters and hikers. Mm. And then, you know, there's some other things that kind of go on over in that county, whereas you don't, you, you get that plus the extra tourism we hear, have here in Gallatin County, you know, hikers, climbers, swift water, uh, yeah. skiing, all that, you know, that, that adds a way more, a lot a, more way, climbing. Hot, yeah, a lot more complexity for where our, what our SAR calls could look like every single time we get a page. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I often think as an outdoor enthusiast myself, it's just how easily somebody could get off a plane at Gallatin Field in a t-shirt and shorts and it's 85 degrees and they're like, awesome, let's go hike in the Bridgers. And they basically bring nothing and get in several miles and hit a thunderstorm. And 30 minutes later, they're hypothermic 
and you got a problem. Yeah, I was going to say earlier, um, you can go from McDonald's to Sacagawea and be stranded in under two hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's not many places in the country you can pull that off. You know, you might be somewhere <laughs> in the woods and stuck, but as right. far as being at high elevation and then potentially dehydrated or injured yeah. that quickly in a spot that you can't just drive to to pick you up, you know, that's this place is easy to do that. And that's, yeah. that's generally what our calls look like when they are in the higher uh, higher elevation. Yeah, and thinking about it, you know, people are coming from sea level, and boom, they're up at ten thousand feet all of a sudden, and you know, so yeah, the recipe is there. Yeah, well, I have the stats right here in front of me from twenty twenty one in review here. So we had this is Gallatin County, which is like two hundred and ten miles long, tall, and like sixty miles wide. And yeah. We actually have three SAR teams. We have Gallatin County, where we have the Valley. We have Big Sky, and then we have West Yellowstone. Correct, yeah. They all fall into the Gallatin County Sheriff's Office, but there is the Valley section, which is kind of the primary section, the largest. And then there is Big Sky, which is based down below the ski resort at Big Sky, and then West Yellowstone has their own. And the reason for that is if we got a call in West Yellowstone, it's 200 miles away. Yeah. So we have to have separate teams that are built up in these different areas to service these highly populated areas. So West Yellowstone, we have obviously a lot of Yellowstone-type traffic, huge snowmobile presence in the winter. Like They're just constantly rescuing snowmobilers, big sky, skiing, a lot of backcountry. They're Mm -hmm. deep into the mountains. And by the time you get – and rivers, they have rivers there. And then by the time you get to like the Bozeman Valley area, it's everything. It's it's rivers, mountains, peaks – and urban. Mm-hmm. So, cause that's where the greatest population is. So between all that last year, we had 134 missions. Um, 34 of them were searches and 69 of them were rescues. And that's kind of an interesting statistic cause that's been changing over the last 10 years. 10 years ago when we started, it was 50, 50 between searches and rescues because technology people were getting lost. Um, typically a lot of searches, I don't know, suicide would enter into the search category, um, which, you know, there's those, and then the rest are people getting lost and that's less and less and less because tech is getting better. Hunters, mountain bikers, hikers don't get lost as much. So good tech, either through GPS devices or really what it has, what has changed is, having it all on your phone, like Onyx Maps, for example. People have the, the technology to just navigate themselves. Yeah, I would even say, too, with that technology, something like Onyx, you can share with your buddies, like you can ping them where you're going. You can even let them know ahead of time, this is where we're going to get to to ski or to hunt or whatever. Yep. So if you need help from them, they know where you're at already or they can relay that to search and rescue or something of that nature. Yeah. So I think a lot more people are self-rescuing in that regard. Plus, cell service is better. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, over ten years, it's just there's more service. For sure, cell service is better, and uh, and, and just as you're saying in the mapping, the track back function is huge. Um, I, I personally have been. I wouldn't really call it classified as lost because I'm here today. I must have been found at some point. Um, I uh, lost my truck just in the rolling hills coming out of Dillon, and I literally walked past it, not realizing that the dirt path that I crossed was the path that I did park on. And it was getting close to dark, and luckily I turned around and was able to catch a glimpse of it and saw a glare. But if I had a track back function 
running on my phone, which would have been easy to do. I had a smartphone. I would have found it a lot easier. And back in the day, that was common. You'd find a lot of patients that would lose their trucks in the middle of the night because they got on a track of a deer. And before they knew it, you know, they were, that was it. They were stranded for the night. And sometimes you'd find them and they'd be a couple hundred feet from the trucks. Yeah. Uh, it's just so easy. Like I am thinking pre-tech, right? What you're describing. It's so easy to find yourself lost by by a hundred yards, right? If it gets a fog rolls in, um, you get extreme weather, heavy snow, it's dark. Um, it just it was always amazing to me how easily you could walk past your truck, not see it, or get the wrong trail. Especially in the backcountry, it's like, oh yeah, I think I'm on the right trail, and then it's like, oh man, where am I? <laughs> mm-hmm. I was I've been lost on a sar call before. <laughs> We don't want to say that. This is, this we're is professionals. Great, that was one of my questions <laughs> yeah, we're I had professionals. for you guys. I was like, all right, you're on SAR teams. Have you ever needed a rescue or well, have you been lost or what does it look like for you know, that? And so, Well, to that point, too, is is uh, I can understand that Clay, where he probably is coming from by saying that. I'm sure he's got a story that comes down to the day he was lost. But uh, our tracking, even for that, has helped us. We now have live tracking on our phones with maps. I mean, every time I leave for a call now, there's a certain level of I check out on one app to say that I'm responding. I check into another app to see that the map we have uploaded, I'm pinged on the map. We have our in-reaches devices that I can also track with too. And then of course, radio comms um, that hopefully none of us are getting lost ever again, because we've connected all those dots. It'd be almost impossible for us to lose track of each other. Yeah. We have resources now that'll help us in many, many ways, even back to say like what we would call Valley Base, like the ham guys are like, oh, well you are here though. You would never over the over the radio announced that you were lost. Never. <laughs> never. You, you would never live that down. <laughs> you would drag yourself out and start running if you have to. <laughs> so so, so what, there must be a kind of culture here. The background, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a, yeah. it's a bro-brock culture you know you don't want to get ribbed too hard for doing something (laughs) stupid because you're supposed to be the guy helping not the guy that's the liability water it out there is a liability but what happened for with me or the way i got lost we're in the bridgers which is just you know uh east of town here and it was a dark night and it was really bad weather and the bridgers run perfectly north south Mm -hmm. pretty much Mm -hmm. and uh my brain flipped and though we were looking for guys who also had had their brain flip. So they turned around 180 because you can't tell the direction really from one or the other. So you literally have to trust your compass, but your brain is telling you it's all wrong. Yeah, which is really difficult sometimes, right? To just go, no, this this is wrong here. Yeah. This isn't. I got to follow this. Yeah. I even think for a time the whole team was temporarily turned around because I I remember shooting like these flares off the side and we're saying, hey, can you can you see these? And they're saying, no, we can't see them. I'm pretty sure we're shooting them off the wrong side. Yeah. I won't get into the specifics of that call, but I know which call you're referring to. <laughs> it was before my time, but the story is it will long outlive all of us. But, uh, everybody thought they were on the wrong side of the mountain range. They all thought they were on the west side when they were actually on the east side. I swear I heard and something about I, I this. I believe it was camera flashes that were what people were able to do is flash their camera. And that's how they were able to tell that they were on the wrong side. Yeah, because you couldn't see town or anything. The weather was terrible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, was it was fogged into where even if you could see town, you couldn't because of the, the fog yeah. and the clouds and there the weather was no so visual bad. Reference. So this is a great opportunity to look at something, right? Because in, in one breath, we're talking about the value of tech, which I fully support. And I think all of us agree. Like if you can have tech with you that can help you navigate 
and know how to use it, right? That's another thing. Train, like a lot of things we train at XO Clay Mm -hmm. is start in your backyard. Yeah. Right? The driveway camp to shake things down so you're not in the middle of nowhere and find out whatever doesn't work or you don't know how to use it. Uh, Same thing with basic tech navigation. You know, pull out your inReach, figure out how it works on the back porch, use your phone app, know how to do all that stuff before you go. So there's that. But the other point is when the tech fails, right, there, there's also this possibility of over-relying on tech because it is so good. Um, uh, absolutely. I would even say that a fair bit of those 34 searches from last year, we could probably dive into the numbers, but a bit of those would be because the tech failed. There you go. They then needed help. Because they ran out of cell service or their battery died is probably the most common tech failure because that's what works for a moment. They rely on that and there was no backup plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a couple of things real quick there. Bring a charge pack for your phone. Leave with a fully charged battery. Shut it off in between when you're not needing it. You know. Yep. Maybe airplane mode when you're not needing it. You just want to take pictures. Airplane mode, low power mode, right? Get rid of all the other running apps. Clean it up. Keep it warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Use it sparingly. Um, okay, so that's helpful, but now it fails. What are some essential items or just ways of thinking that would allow you to still find your way out, find your way back, help people find you when the tech fails? The inReach, oh, I forgot to charge it before I left or whatever, right? It's not working. Phone is dead. Yeah. Well, turning around would be great. Um, I took a lost person behavior course a few years ago, and it, there was somewhere in the ballpark of 90% plus of people don't turn around when they're lost. The first part is they don't admit that they're lost. So they keep going. They keep going around the mountain. They keep going down it. They think they've been there before. They recognize that tree. They recognize this part of the trail. And then get to a point where they go, I actually have no idea where I am. But instead of turning around, they usually keep going. It's a very common human habit that we have that can sometimes really cause a lot of issues. Would you say there's a a little bit of panic involved in that too? Like, you know, you're kind of panicky because you are starting to feel lost and so you you keep going a little bit harder? Yes. So there is a psychological state of being lost. Your brain does not like it. So when you admit that you are lost and don't know where you are, your brain kind of panics. It's just the psychology. It wants to know where it is. So if this happens, there is a short process that you can go through. You can say, well, I'm on Earth. I am in the United States. I am in, for example, Montana. I am in Bozeman. I'm in the Gallatin County. I'm in the Bridger Range. I'm somewhere near this point. And then like you can you can just walk yourself back to the like the closest area that you don't know where you are. Um, and then you work from there because sometimes your brain will short circuit to that degree. Like it just like loses its mind, literally. So you get it back and reorientate yourself to the best of your ability and then turn around. And then or if you're able to make a call or or get help out for some reason. Do not move from that spot. That we were just on a call a year ago, uh, I guess it was, uh, that we got a call from a guy, hiker, hey, I came back, I'm lost, I don't know where I am. Um, I can see town, but I just don't know where I am or whatever. Call cu- cuts out. We got the GPS coordinates from his phone. 
We go to there. He's not there. We start looking around. He gets another call out. He's moved like two miles. Oh, call. Hey, we're in okay. the wrong spot already. And then and then he just kept moving and moving and moving and moving. So we're just chasing this guy around the mountains in the dark. And we caught him on a thermal camera finally. And then oh, just a whiff right before the battery died and then went in there and found him. But he, the guy just kept hiking. So stay put. Yeah, they started a program for kids uh, called the Hug a Tree program, and it's uh, it's where they teach kids to say, hey, if you're in the woods and you're somewhere out, maybe with your family at one point or some friends, and now you're lost, hug a tree, meaning sit still. You know, let someone come and find you, because if you're a moving target, you're that much harder to locate if someone's going to be looking for you, because generally as a child, hopefully if you were out there with a family or uh, other friends, someone's going to come and look for you if you've been separated from the group. So yeah. the best thing is is to sit still. And, yeah. and if you've made commu- and if you're an adult and you've made communication with a rescuer of some sort, stay still. Describe your surroundings the best you can. Describe who you're with. Describe what's around you. Are there dogs around you? Whatever it may be. Describe the best of where you are as soon as you can, and then stay put, and we'll come and find you. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's something like I'm also thinking, right, Clay talked about an actual technique to calm yourself down. So you're starting to, like you said, your brain does not like being lost. So the brain puts you in panic mode when it thinks it's lost. To get out of that panic mode, which you're typically going to make horrible decisions when you're feeling panicky. Yeah, you're not thinking straight. You're not thinking straight. Even if you have the tech and it's working, you still may not be thinking straight. So just that process of orienting yourself, taking some breaths, calming down, right? Um, And then I'm thinking... Let's say you have to wait a while, and this would apply if you could push the in-reach button, if you did have that, or even if you didn't, it would be as far as things you can do to help yourself if the tech goes dark and it's going to take a while, being prepared, having what you need to, say, build a fire, stay warm, have some extra food, things like that. Exactly. Be prepared to stay there. Right. You don't know where you are, so you need to stay right where you are and be prepared for that. Just settle in, like... But as you guys know, too, the preparation starts even before that. So on the topic of tech, you have a phone. Phone's pretty straightforward. If you can get the call out, it's going to work. If you can't get the call out, it's not. If you can text, you could do that. Um, With an inReach, which is now becoming more and more normal, easy to get. The plans are pretty cheap. No one even notices they have it in their backpack. The batteries last forever. Mine's coming up on 10 years old, and the battery still works, you know. Mm Get prepared with how you set it up. Learn how it works. Learn how to message from it. Learn who you have on your emergency contact list. Will those people be able to help you? Or is it mom and dad that are maybe back in whatever state you came from? Mm-hmm. Are they just going to panic and make the problem worse? Most likely. Mm-hmm. Don't right. shave years off your mother's life if you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Put a couple friends on there you know are going to make a very logical decision to say, you know what, they said they were going to be here. I think we should do this. We should probably call a local sheriff's department. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be your number one best steps to being located or rescued or whatever the situation may be is having that line item right there because we've had a lot of SOS buttons go off that were either A, an emergency, or B, an accident. And they went to people that 
had no idea that person even had an inreach or even had them on an emergency call. Didn't even know they were in Montana at that time. So definitely line that stuff out beforehand and then tell the people and say, hey, I'm going up here or you know how I am because we've climbed together, we've hiked together, we've swam, you know, floated together. People that know your, your, the way, what you're going to probably do if yeah. they're with you in the mountains. What I hear you saying, Matt, is organize a solid, trustworthy friend group who understand you, what you do, how you do it, um, who can be your emergency contacts, who could coordinate with a local sheriff's department or search and rescue team, for example. Um, and maybe even like when we, this, this, in this podcast, I, I want it to help adventurers and overlanders, right? So I'm thinking of a process here of organizing that group of people and then having stages as far as the level that of distress you're in. So like if your truck gets stuck somewhere, do you have a team of guys who you could reach out to who are on your, your program, right? Your inreach who would just be happy to come and help you get unstuck. You're not life threatening. You know, it's, no, it's, I see what that. I mean. Yeah, we have that. Okay. But yeah. that's what I, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, it's not life sl- you don't need all the resources. You don't need third party people, but yeah, I actually, I, you are allowed three preset messages that are free that you could send a million times if you'd like on an inreach. I think it's still the same with all plans now, but my very first one is I'm stuck or stranded. Bring friends and bring beer. No search and rescue needed. <laughs> Meaning right. it's, right. it's not a critical event, but I'm right. not getting out under my own power. And then the next level is I'm just late. I'll still get out under my own power, but don't fret. I will send this as many times as I have to until I get out. It might take me 10 hours, but I got myself into this and I'm fully capable of getting out. It's just going to take me more time than I had planned. And then the third one is I need help. I need emergency help. And I'm targeting you guys specifically because I know you can do it. I don't need to hit this because if you hit the SOS button, people don't realize this goes to a dispatch center in Houston. They look up a list of phone numbers that you had listed and they're going to call whoever they can. And then the local entity of wherever your ping might've come from. So as you know, the way our counties kind of blend together in the mountains and some of the trails we're on, it might ping Madison County. It might ping somewhere down in Yellowstone. They might not actually have a hundred percent know where you are or who to contact to help you. So that's going to cause that much more, you know, phone phone calls back and forth to figure out where exactly you might be. Yeah. And that, that all is time that all takes time. So for example, we're at, say we're somewhere in the mountains where we border, I would say park County is the park County, Madison, Madison County are very County. common. Cause like you said, we're 200 miles long, but we're really skinny. So when yeah. you get down South, especially towards West Yellowstone, the cell towers and what they might ping us on could be wherever. Yeah. So, so say it comes out as park County or Madison County, then they call Madison County and they say, oh, these are the coordinates of, of the inReach rescue text. And they say, oh, well, actually, that's over in Gallatin County. So you're going to have to call those guys. And so then they have to hang up the phone and then they call over. Or, you know, and then Madison might get involved or Park County might help assist or, or baton the, mm-hmm. the call. But, I mean, that's, that's another 20 minutes. And hopefully they didn't already deploy their own guys to where maybe it's six hours after. And you find out this is a call that's been going on for a while. When they got to the location they thought they may have been, they're not there because they are in the wrong county. And now they need mutual aid. So, I think this is, this is an important part to clarify for everybody who's listening, which is exactly what happens when you hit the SOS button. So like we looked at, okay, you know, have a process in place 
ideally people you can call when it's not a life-threatening emergency. You realize you're going to get out. It's just going to be three in the morning with your headlamp, but it's no big deal, right? Uh, but now, assuming you have something like an inReach, you can push a search uh, or an SOS button. What happens exactly? Like you're sitting in the mountains. Goes to satellites, that signal, that text data packet from your device goes to satellites, then pings down into Houston. Is that where it's based out? And and there's one in Florida. I'll tell you the story why I'm pretty sure it's always Houston. When you get done, you're explaining how it works. Oh, actually, I think I know why. (laughs) Go ahead. Uh, so I, I was uh, getting ready to go climbing, getting ready to go out of service. I was about 10 minutes from leaving cell service, and I get a quick phone call from my dad, and then one immediately later from my mother. And I'm like, wonder why they're both calling me at 7 oh, in the morning I, we've with had different this time zones. We've had this happen a bunch of times. <laughs> and my yep. father, confused, not knowing what it was even from or who had contacted him, and then my mother, really irate, because this is actually the second time this happened to her on, you know, God bless her soul for, <laughs> she got me the inReach, so I kind of blamed her for it. But anyway, <laughs> um, I had hit the SOS button in my backpack, and luckily was still in cell service, because if I had gotten out of cell service, it would have been a bad deal. But then uh, they eventually called me, it was a Houston phone number. It was the inReach dispatch. I can't remember exactly what they were called at that time. Um, but they were just clarifying there's been an SNOS from your device. Are you okay? Or, you know, what's the situation? Right. And it was just an accident. And I was able to turn it off. And we've had a few calls where we've deployed many helicopters. I had a friend have a, that happen to him while he was out kind yeah, of accidental they, backpack. They and the chopper landed right where he was hunting, and he was like, what's going on? <laughs> That's an expensive endeavor. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Yeah, whoops. Make sure you have the lock on. <laughs> well, that's why I want to ask, because this is a thing. Uh, I've had friends and family have this happen to them. Um, how do you, and I think the devices have improved here. I remember the original spot systems, and that button was, I thought, overly exposed. Um, but what can people do to make sure that doesn't accidentally happen? Understand the consequences first. Like that, as soon as that thing goes off, you are probably getting around 20 people minimum to work. So just knowing that, and they're going to, there's going to be county resources, people's volunteered time, uh, perhaps people, anytime you put somebody in a helicopter, you are accepting a certain amount of life risk. Yeah, on their part. Uh, on their part. Uh, so there, there's some really, really heavy consequences that could come from an, an accidental uh, press of that button. So as soon as you know that, you will protect and put that thing in the proper spot in your backpack. Don't just think it'll be fine. No that it will be fine. Mm-hmm. Don't wear it on your hip. Yeah. Don't wear it up in a harness somewhere. It doesn't need to be on the body because if, yeah, if you need it, if, yeah, I, I don't want to go too in, in depth yeah, of it, but yeah, if, if you really need it, you should be able to get it out of your backpack. If you are so immobilized that you're not able to get out of your backpack and you're way out in the mountains, it's going to probably take more of a miracle than an inReach to save you at that point. And and I'm I'm pushing back on this just a little bit, Matt, because I'm a motorcyclist, right? Where so you should have it on you. I like to have it right where if I I come off, it's and and definitely I think this is a point. Don't attach it to your sled. Don't attach it to your bike, mm-hmm. because when you have an accident, at least my experience riding sleds and bikes, even a mountain bike could be the same way. The bikes are often going this way. And you're going that way. And sometimes the bike or sled is going a long way that way. Or you could be injured so bad you couldn't get back to the bike. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, if it's right here and I know how to use it, it's like, 
okay, I could push a button because my shoulder might be dislocated. I can't get my pack off, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, depending on the discipline, I'd say in certain senses, treat it like an avalanche beacon. You yeah. know, they say never put that in your backpack for obvious reasons. Treat 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 the inreach the same way. On a motorcycle, of course, yeah. If you get your backpack ripped off and you're away from your bike, keep it close to your body. But if you're ice climbing or generally hiking in, in situations where you're going to be close to either A, your pack, or something that's on the person, that's fine. But keeping it exposed to where it can be bumped into rocks and trees and branches bad idea bad idea yeah don't let your kid play with it it. yeah don't do that either (laughs) um okay yeah so that makes sense so it's going to and clay mentioned too the first thing that's happening is sending a signal to a satellite yep how important is it to be have a free clear view of the sky do these things work pretty well they work pretty well they run off the uh, we're speaking directly towards an iridium here or uh sorry an in reach which uses the iridium uh, satellite system, which is a global 100%, they call it 100% global coverage. Uh, if you're using a, oh, what's the other one? Global Star. It's on the Global Star Glass. network. The Spot, Spot Beacons or like that. And then there's, they run off the, there's, there's, the Global Star network. Yeah, and then there's a GLONASS, GLONASS system. Yeah. Um, I'm not as familiar with the other ones. But Iridium is the... It has been for a long time considered the gold standard. That's why I really advocate for Garmin in reaches because they use that system. Uh, and then, yeah, so it goes up to a satellite, pings down. Um, but, but to your question, how important is it? Free sky? It's important. Uh, and to have the antenna oriented straight up because of the way that antenna works. If it's basically pointed halfway down or down or upside down, it's basically not transmitting in the proper direction or receiving in the proper direction because of the way you have to get into antenna technology and see how that works. It's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, so it needs to be pointed up for best reception and it, it may not go out for a while. We've, we've had in our experience, you know, you could wait 20 minutes for a satellite to come by. So and get I, and something I'm up. hearing right there is once you turn it on, you hit the button. Don't be like, oh, I, okay, done that. I better save power. I'm going to turn right. it off. Right. Yeah. Keep, Let it go. Keep it on for sure. Um, the, the, of the second accident that I had with my inReach was actually while I was in Madagascar. So really remote, okay. and I sent an accidental message directly to my mother that sent within about three seconds, which I think was a world record mm-hmm. time for wow. my inReach personally to have it go off that fast, where on the other side of it, I was on top of uh, a peak in Bolivia, as much sky as you could possibly get, and it took 24 hours for that message to get out of my inReach. Not really sure why, but hmm. you know, you, you don't, again, your technology, you have your phone, then you have your inReach, it may fail too. Okay. And you're, yeah, go ahead. In a training scenario, we had a inReach that had been running for probably two weeks on the dash. Just constant running, always plugged in. We sent out a training text with the coordinates. And it was, I think, over three miles off from where we were actually standing. Wow. So... That is just to the nature of electronics and being around magnetic fields is what we deduced Um, that. Okay. So if I also now have from that lesson, if, if my phone or my inReach has been running for a significant amount of time, I will power it down, repower it back up, let it reacquire, do re do a reset. Mm, Then I will send it out just especially around vehicles and everything that it's, it's been around a lot of magnetic 
stuff. Well, that you mentioned avalanche beacons earlier, Matt, and I remember in some training uh, being told as far as like my phone and my beacon and my satellite in reach, uh, whatever you happen to use, like keep keep that beacon away from those things. Like, keep keep it away, some, and then also like, keep it face in. Keep it what? Keep it face in because most of the the beacon, the, anything that's got a face on it, that's got some type of digital face. Keep it face in because you think of how you might bump things or interference from something. That's usually more of the antenna, but bumping into things that could damage it mm-hmm. or mess mess up something behind the screen could be the reason why it faulted. Um, having things on your dash. What else comes through your dash? A lot of sunlight, a yeah. lot of heat. That's going to slow the deteriorate stuff. So just practice with any of these things. Always practice the same way you practice with a beacon. Send a practice message to mom that you called her on the phone earlier before you surprise her from a foreign country. That's always a great idea. <laughs> and, and like a lot of these overlanding skills, like the practice can be a lot of fun. Oh, it's a ton of fun. It's oh, a yeah. ton of fun, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you're dry, you're not in a life-threatening emergency, but you're sending people messages. And I know like with, with, with an inReach, you can, you can connect it to your phone and an app so you can actually text through it. And there are a lot of things you can do, but you have to learn to use it and you have to practice with it. And then you'll just have way more confidence when you're in the field. Another thing too, I think, people don't think about in, in the way of the utility of some kind of device like that is some there may have been some emergency back at home people need to reach you and I think yeah. that 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 can sometimes be very helpful also I agree it's a two-way street it's it's that's why we carry satellite phones we typically always have a satellite phone on the on an expedition that's plugged in and running mm-hmm. so in the event that our family members do need to get hold of us we all have kids and family you know, they could, we could start making a plan if something needed to be executed to get somebody home in the event of some tragedy or something. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and Clay, like now I'm thinking about, you mentioned expedition. And so I'm picturing you on expedition mm-hmm. and what it looks like when our teams go on expedition. Yep. And I'm thinking about the question as far as search and rescue beyond the United States, right? Like, well, I mean, here we are, we're a developed country. We have a lot of resources, uh, you can go out overlanding or whatever adventure you might be into um, and know that when you push the inReach button, there's a fair amount of resources there to come and help you. As you. In your experience, when you're traveling the world as an overlander, when does that start to peter out or does it? As soon as you go south of the border of, Can- of, of the U.S. into Mexico, north into Alaska and Canada and all that, you're pretty good to go. Um, anytime that you leave a foreign into the foreign country, as long as it's not Europe or a really well-established, uh, urban area, like city area in a foreign country, you should expect significant delays days for response days. Yep. Okay. So we go South into Mexico you're going, a lot of people like to go to Baja nowadays, mm-hmm. for example, right? So you're somewhere in Baja and you think, no problem, I got my inReach, push the button. There, there's a, so many little nuancey things that can go wrong okay. in the bureaucracy of rescue. Uh, so, all right, yeah, we got a guy that needs rescue. Well, who's going to be? Who's going to pay for it? You're in Mexico now. Is the Army coming to get you? Is the Navy coming to get you? Is there an established volunteer program that's going to get you? How does the Iridium Network contacts get a hold of the right people in that area? And no, that's getting better and better and better. But eventually, a lot of this stuff comes down to 
how it's going to be executed and who's going to pay for it. Okay. So more than likely, it's going to be on you if it's not the military. Usually, the military will not charge you. Yeah, I think but it I comes down know. to that's each country. A, that's not a blanket dis- statement. Yeah. <laughs> they, they might charge you. Yeah, you Matt, know. you mentioned Madagascar, Bolivia. What What's your take on the same question? Yeah, well, I, I have a, a not really firsthand experience, but I did talk to a handful of guides while I was on a trip in Bolivia uh, back in 2018. And uh, one of the guides that I talked to mentioned that the other three guides that he worked with were the search and rescue team for the country. And if they needed three, three guys, it was three, three guides is what they were. They weren't really rescuers. I mean, they were, I think they were probably self-taught and maybe trained in other ways. I'm not really hundred percent sure. Um, but they described the few times that they have had calls. It was a, a group discussion in town in La Paz and they had to pull a medevac ship off of the coast of Peru to come and help them. So you're stranded on a peak in Bolivia somewhere. You're going to be days before a rescue, if not a recovery at that point, because there's no, I mean, you saw how long it might take us to just get someone rounded up between a Park County, Gallatin County cell phone ping that we're not sure about. You go down there, those minutes turn into days easily. I was going to ask you there, what is the difference between a rescue and a recovery? So a rescue is, there is a chance that we're going to find you, well, hopefully the chances are always good, but we're going to find you in as good a health as you can possibly be at that point and as soon as we can within the risk limits of what we have to look at too because it is not worth risking one of our own lives for somebody else at that point because if we're killing three to save one, that doesn't work. Um, A recovery is a pretty verified um, deceased person at that point, And we are going in to recover the body for the family and bring them home. And that's usually where we're going to dumb down the level of, um, expedient efforts to get out there. We're going to lower the risk for ourselves because at that point, there is nothing we can't do to make the situation any better other than bring you home. Right. Right. That makes sense. The sense the ri- of urgency. Yeah, that risk threshold goes to the floor. So it gets a lot slower. Yep. Makes sense. So I just wanted to clarify that for people. So, you know, they know they don't never want to find themselves in a recovery situation. You know, I just want to be if that person who has a chance of being rescued. Yeah, exactly. So clarity there. Um, but the international aspect of this, I think, could be really useful for overlanders. Um, Clay, like I, I think of our definition at XO of overlanding, and one of the tenets of that definition is an inter- international travel. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, when you're really overlanding, you are crossing international borders. You're traveling through remote areas, often in less developed countries, and so there is a need to be self-reliant, also a key part of that definition. Yeah. The reason we have defined overlanding thusly is because of what we're all talking about here. When you leave the borders of the U.S. and you start traveling, let's say you're heading through Mexico and then you're going down through Central America, there has to be a headspace shift, it seems to me, uh, from, hey, I'm fine, I have my inReach, I have my phone, I can get rescued anytime we have a problem, to... Now I need to really be focused on being more self-reliant. I have to be prepared to be self-reliant. Yeah, there's a good company called 30 Seconds Out. I see your sticker over there. Um, and they, there's a sticker that they have and we have here. That There's two. One is no one is coming. It's up to us. And it's stuck all over in a bunch of our trucks. It's there to 
reinforce our mindset that no one is coming, it's up to us. And then there's a second sticker that they have that says, expect to self-rescue. Um, that needs to be at the top end of your priority list on any overland international travel trip. Um, cause the resources are just so fragmented between the, the variables of communication, cost, who's coming, are the teams available? And then it gets down to the actual rescue, um, variables. Like is the weather okay? People say, oh, I'll just call a helicopter in. There's a lot of times we don't use helicopters cause they can't come in. It's just too dangerous for a helicopter. Too much wind, too a storm, clouds. Uh, we were on a call three years ago that they wanted to use a helicopter for uh, a recovery of a body, and a helicopter didn't fly for five days. So it's like obviously the risk threshold was to the floor. Like they didn't, we weren't going to risk anything for a recovery, but they still didn't feel comfortable flying a helicopter for five days. Wow. Yeah, that's in this country. And that that was just down in Yellowstone. Yeah. So, and there's helicopters everywhere and really, really experienced, great pilots here. Some of the best pilots. And they're saying no. Because the pilots are saying no. Yeah. So, and like I said, right, that's in this country. That's right here. Uh, So now, you know, you're traveling in less developed countries. You're overlanding. Um, the risk threshold, well, the risk goes way up as far as having an issue and not being able to get a rescue uh, of any kind. Um, so let's help overlanders here. You're starting out overlanding like we advocate for, you're doing weekend trips, you're doing trainings, you're getting experience gradually to build your skills, your knowledge, right? Yep. What are some things that aspiring overlanders can do? Uh, or even current overlanders to maybe up their game to be better prepared to self-rescue in the event of being um, in a different country. Sure. I think that comes down to understanding all the logistics around uh, overland travel. So avoiding needing to be rescued in the first place is the number one thing to learn, right? So hopefully you never have to do it. So that comes down to Knowing your range on your fuel, knowing your vehicle, maintaining your vehicle, driving with mechanical sympathy, etc. And then if all of those things fail due to whatever, then your personal skills need to come into play with um, medical. And then you need to have the right equipment. You need to have trained with that equipment and know how to use it. Uh, there's so many people out there that have a lot of, and I'm guilty of this too. There's so much stuff in your truck that you like in the event, I will figure out how to use this. No, you won't. It'll be, you might, but more than likely you won't. You, you never rise to the occasion. You fall back to your training. So if you haven't trained on certain things and actually done it, it's going to be three times longer than you think it's going to take, or you won't be able to do it. You have to train for it. And then, um, be very good in your planning. Um, I remember getting scolded by the Team 5 guys in uh, Central America when they rolled in and we were traveling from Bolivia into El Salvador and they started drilling me. Those guys are tip of the spear guys, former CIA, former, you know, Special Forces, ground branch guys. And all, all you know, they, they were like, okay, so where's the nearest hospital at this time? And I didn't have an answer. I don't, I don't know. You know, like, I don't know. and they were like, why you're the expedition leader. And you don't know where the nearest hospital is at this time. You're wrong. You know, you're messing up big time. You should have known this before you left the house. I'm like, Ugh. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, so I that would corrected. be like uh, that would be a very broad level of situational awareness. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Make some phone calls. Uh, let you know. So say we're going to Iceland coming up. We're going to Finland, Sweden, Norway and Iceland. I know uh, search and rescue guys in Iceland. I'm going to be reaching out to them before we get there. They're going to know where we are. They're going to have our in reach communications. Um, Finland, Sweden and Norway. Norway is very advanced in their search and rescue efforts. Finland. Not so much. I'm not sure. I have to look into that, but I'm going to have to find the consulate, the U.S. consulate. They need to know where we are, our travel routes, uh, things like that. So in the event that something goes wrong, the country, at least the U.S. consulate, has some idea of what we were doing and where we are. And then they can facilitate the rescue, hopefully. Um, So there's a lot. of Once you leave the border and the the simplicity of pushing that button uh, here in the U.S., which we've already discussed is not really that simple. Um, it, the complexity goes through the roof. So is to, so to, for clarification and to help people here, what, I, what I'm seeing again, like a lot of the things we're talking about is you, you need skills, you need knowledge, you need training. So in the case of overlanding abroad, you're looking at getting some medical training, um, getting some mechanical training so you know how to fix your own vehicle, the basics, so you can keep things going and you understand vehicle sympathy, right? Um, get some training with what's going on in that country when it comes to any kind of rescue. And then I'm also thinking of this one, um, recovery. Like know how to use your recovery gear. Your vehicle gets stuck. Know how to get it out. Get it out safely because that's another thing, right? When we're talking winches and recovery straps, kinetic energy, you don't know what you're doing there. You could get yourself in a horrible situation, right, Mm -hmm. if you have an accident or injury from that. So, and here's the cool thing. Like we always talk about, you can go train with these things and have a blast right in your backyard, weekends, small trips, right? Develop the skills, use this stuff, have fun, and gradually work your way to the next level. Yeah, go get stuck. I right, mean, go time, get stuck. Half the time I'll pass the, the <laughs> hangar here and just honk and wave because I just came over Flathead Pass, which is our, fortunately, we have a backyard off-road course pretty much that takes you through the mountains, but I'll go up there and purposely look for something that I probably shouldn't do and get stuck just to see did those max tracks I bought work? Yes. Does that winch I have actually work? Do I know how to use that winch? Did mm-hmm. I bring a shovel? No, I forgot a shovel that day, so I had to use the max track to dig out. That's not very much fun. You know, know why you have that stuff and use it, but go practice where it is safe, where you know we have a hospital up the road. You know, you're not going to be questioned on those things, and then you can ask yourself those other questions in the preparation for next time, but know how tiring it is to dig yourself out of snow, mud, exactly. hung up on a log. Should I have brought a chainsaw? Did that little handsaw I brought, is that going to suffice? Okay, I want to ping my buddies that come up here and give me a hand. Let's see how well this works. I tried to set it all up. Let's see if they're coming, right? Yeah, if it takes two hours about back here, figure two days in a foreign country. Wow. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, and if it happens sooner, awesome. But, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best, but you are planning for the worst, and it's going to be two days. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, that, that means to me, like, one, one thing I really take home when it comes to everything we're talking about and the way of being prepared is that ability, like, being prepared to wait a while. Right, like having enough food, having enough water. And this is where overlanders, generally speaking, could really be winning because you you have an amazing camp and life support system 
built into your vehicle, right? Yeah. Hopefully you have gas in the tank and so you have a generator mm-hmm. you're running, you can charge electronics, you can use headlights, uh, be able to be found quicker. Hopefully you have a radio communications inside that truck. Let's talk about that a little bit. Like, because I, I, I've heard of that. If you have a certain kind of radio, SAR starts to come find you, you can actually communicate with them. Is that true? Yeah, there's ping frequencies that you can ping on. Um, 129 something, isn't it? 120. Well, I, I would say, so right off the bat there, we're talking about things that are very specific. Okay. Anybody can Google and reach see the big fat SOS button on it and make that work. That is one of your best devices at this time in our lives to use. Now, radios can be very, very complicated, as you guys know. Two-way communications amongst the trucks or the convoy that you are in is one thing. As far as accessing a particular repeater, a simplex channel, and then someone on the receiving end that may be listening is going to be very, very difficult. Even if you live in this county, you know this county, you know this SAR team. Yeah. You it, don't it, want to bank on that. It is. You, exactly. It's not like the movies. The it's movies not make it like sound <laughs> like you turn this thing on and like start talking and then somebody starts talking back. No. You will be there for days. I'll go around here just listening to the Bozeman repeater, which is the, you know, covers probably 150 square miles of people talking on a public repeater. I'll listen for two days and nobody talk on it. You can call out for two days and there might not be anybody listening. We, <laughs> yeah. we, we do have a few. Yeah. And that's with all the ham nerds in the county listening. You know, so like it, it is not like the movies. You don't turn that thing on and people start talking back. Uh, you really have to know what you're doing. Um, that sounds even like- myself, like I would consider myself kind of a ham radio guy and I struggle. I struggle. Yeah. So it sounds like something if you're, you're going to even be thinking radios, go get some training. Yeah, and get, the, get, and get proper programming mm-hmm. in your radios ahead of time. Like I have a fair bit of, I used to have a fair bit of programming for Utah and Montana. I have everything I need in Montana, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, as soon as you start wandering off from your area that you're programmed in your radio, man, you got to really know your stuff. And so what I hear Matt saying is forget about all that in general, you know, use the inReach. And then if you know how to use the app for that inReach on your phone, then it's easy to text. You can have a text communication with SAR and they can know, hey, we have a broken leg possibly or we have a concussion or whatever it is and come better prepared to help with that, right? Yeah, there's no there's no training to text message. I've never heard of anybody have to go through a training. I think three year olds know how to text message now. So right. that's a pretty common I think thing. You're that's, born that way now. You're born you're <laughs> yes. born that way to know how to text. <laughs> right. Radio has a lot of complications, and then the, the connectivity of it, whether it be repeaters or simplex channels. Like I said, amongst two way, amongst your friends, there's a lot of simple. Uh, simple radios they build out there that are really cheap that you can get but as far as the accessing emergency the 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 emergency responders don't even really want you on a radio you're not going to make it better for them they are going to try to organize their plan together and if you're yelling help through it that doesn't help anybody that's going to mess up everything (laughs) and probably steer them in the wrong direction so the, the channels that they've done with satellite communication and cell phones that is your best course of action unless you want to be a ham radio enthusiast or a potential search and rescue communications person and really understand how those protocols and procedures work within the county. Mm-hmm. Even
even me being a, um, I am a ham nerd and I am on search and rescue. If I was stranded somewhere in the county, I would still probably use my inReach before I use the radio. The radio would might only come in handy if I was still mobile and able to contact the helicopter as it was flying overhead. That'd yeah. be it. As far as talking to the teams, that's not helping them at all. Leave okay. them alone. Do you remember at the beginning of the conversation how we said communications is everything? Yes. And that's the biggest struggle? Yes. Every single time a SAR call goes out, in the back of every rescuer's mind, I think there is this little voice that says, I wonder how the comms will go today. <laughs> You know, because right. it's 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 depending on the situation and wherever it's it's a goat rope to get them working. And this area has dead spots, and that area has dead spots, and the repeater is just working weird today. And it's just, I mean, all kinds of stuff is always just happening. So they, if you have your systems working really well and your radios cool, but don't rely on them. Okay, I would I would back up to say that there, if you need voice communications, which I say. If you have the means to do it, you should. Satellite phone. phone. Yep. You got to have a sat phone. I have three of them sitting over there, and they're all ready to go, and they go between things. So if you have to get on the phone and talk to somebody, you can. I, with your experience with sat phones, I, very helpful. What, what, generally speaking, are they affordable? Are they easy to figure out how to use for an, an average person? Yeah. Yeah, uh, so they're not affordable. They're a thousand dollars plus for um, the phone. For the just for the phone, okay. um, and then the phone service is. I pay. I think we do the something like two hundred fifty minutes a year, and it expires within the year, and it's seven hundred dollars for the year per phone. Mm-hmm. Um, the re- you could probably get by with say like a hundred minutes if you never ever use the phone, but just make sure that you have enough minutes on a phone that you can actually work through a situation. Mm-hmm. There's multiple, like when we were doing the surgeries in, in Guatemala in the village, Dr. Keith had to make several phone calls for consultations before he decided that he was able and, and good to go to do the surgery. He burned up an hour and 20 minutes talking on a sat phone doing consultations. In a search and rescue sort of scenario, that's very probable as well. Um, And this drives home another point I think you guys might agree with here, which is when you begin to communicate, let's say it's even through the texting app with your inReach, with SAR, think about what you're saying. Don't don't just blah, 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 right? Like be, be deliberate, be calculated, try to give them actionable information. Think before you talk. What is what do they actually need? Uh, the medical world has a great uh, formula, like a soap note. Um, soap note, yeah, yeah. Like here's this chief complaint. Here's the problem. This is what we think. Here's the person's name, age, whatever. All the basic information that someone can start actionable, um, make actionable re- rescue efforts, rescue efforts, and um, and go from there. Because what if that's the one text you get out? At least your first text Mm -hmm. needs to be bomber. It shouldn't say, I need help. It should say, rescue required, male, 40 years old, shortness of breath, chest problems. Mechanism injury. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hard fall, you know, and then And then where we are. And here I am. Yeah. Here's the severity of what's going on. This is where we are. Yep. Let us know what else you need because we're going to be standing by until someone shows up. Yeah. So okay. if you could only get one text out 
or one phone call, what do you need to say? Which to me says you need to stop and think and even write it down before you make that phone call because that may be the only one you get. Um, We also have a rule here with uh, the sat phones. Sat phones drop calls constantly. So uh, the first thing, say I'm calling Rochelle from the middle of nowhere somewhere, like Greenland. I would do this in Greenland. Get on the phone. I'm on a sat phone. Everything's okay. Sat phone, everything's okay. Those are the first words I say. Because if there's a sat phone call that comes in. They're thinking distress. That's the first thing. And then so I, I at least say that if it's not an emergency. So I don't cause panic on the other end when it immediately cuts out after that phone call. And then I don't have another sat for another hour or more. And now my wife is just at home going, what was that about? Right. Right. So think about what you need to say for good or for rescue. Uh, when you make that phone call, the initial one. Yeah. All radios say PTT on the side of the trigger that stands for push to talk, not push to think. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there's the rule, press, pause, talk, and then think before you push. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's really useful, too, to be thinking about how other people are going to react and respond to whatever it is you're saying or doing. Um, interesting, helpful story here. When I went into the backcountry for several days to do some backcountry skiing via snowmobiles, Um, we parked a rig and this was just right down by Bucks Ridge, but I had not notified the local sheriff. And so he noticed that our truck was there for multiple days and got concerned, did a plate check, called my wife and obvious freak out there, you know? And so I learned if you're going to leave a vehicle or something like that, maybe notify local authorities ahead of time, let them know what you're doing. Leave a note in the windshield. Yeah. That's a huge thing. There you go. Yeah. So uh, I see the hourglass is empty, guys. And this is such an amazing and broad topic. I mean, there's so many things to cover here. Um, I, is there anything else before we wrap it up, Clay, Matt, that you think people should know about search and rescue, being rescued? Um, I was thinking about overlanders, and we mentioned about how their vehicles are such awesome support systems if they're well set up. Uh, but then people, you know, they might go on a little hike from their vehicle. They might be going for a bike ride. Like people do a lot of things while they're overlanding, even going fishing, wading down a river for a mile or so. Um, so I was thinking maybe like to know when you leave that support system of your vehicle, you know, what are a few essentials you should have to make sure you don't wind up lost or in a bad situation? Yeah, I always have like a get home bag of some kind. It's, it's the essentials. Like if, if you had to be out there by yourself, you have shelter, food, water, fire, heat, you know, the, these are the basics. Mm-hmm. Uh, have that with you. It goes with you no matter what. Even if you think you're only going to be gone for an hour, <laughs> A lot of calls have come in from, I was only going to be gone for an hour. I was just going to run up there and check this out. And then, yeah. So just have something easy to take with you that has the essentials. essentials Have something with you. Um, And then as I think about the difference between like a lot of the calls that we work on and then overlanding rescues, the difference is usually in the county here, we're dealing with people that are doing day hike trips. They're leaving the vehicle. Day day or two, they're backpacking. They might be camping somewhere off grid. Uh, with vehicles, we're talking about mass distance. So, 
I will leave from here and I'll go up. I could cover the whole county off road and maybe end up into Wyoming at some point on, on a trip in a day. So if you, you need to just like you would on a day hike, say, Hey, I'm going up to Ferry Lake. If I'm not back by six o'clock, you know, start being worried. You could the best thing to be like on an overland route is, Hey, this is where I'm going. Share your route with somebody. And if you deviate from that route, you need to be able to get some information out and say, I have deviated from the route. This is where I'm going now because the distances are incredible because you're in a vehicle or a motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, we're talking up to hundreds of miles, not and if, 10 square miles. And if your device has the ability to be permanently powered on a bike or in a vehicle, um, you can activate a tracking yeah. feature and someone yeah. can follow you. That, that should be defaulted. You mm-hmm. should do that. Even, even if the minimum, if you can only afford the minimum tracking feature, uh, as an overlander, I think that's well worth it. You know, ping only goes out every 20 minutes. That's okay. At least within the next 20 minutes, the information is going to be updated. Yeah. doesn't need to be every five seconds or whatever it is. It's every 20 minutes is good enough. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I'd say specific to overlanders too. know your equipment because the, the whole concept of how we don't like to turn around, if you're going one direction and you're down to a quarter tank, turning around might not get you back to where you filled up. Right. You're forced at that point to continue to go forward. So know your fuel levels, know your tolerance, know how far you can go on a tank when you are in four-wheel drive all day long. Know how well your recovery equipment does work. Um, how low can you go on your tire pressure? Yeah. Maybe it's worth getting stuck to not spin a tire off a bead. Do you know how to put a tire back on a bead if you had to? There's yep. so many little things that you don't want to experiment when you're in that level of, I'm not really sure where I am or how long this might take. That might be the best time because we're all going to explore. We're going to try to push it a little bit. But no, the further away from home in a sense that you are and the comfort zone of knowing where your hospital, your search and rescue, wherever they may be, bring that bar back down to a a respectable level and realize maybe I don't need to try that mud hole today or climb over those rocks. Yeah, It's probably not worth it because I am 2,000 miles from anything that I really do know. Yeah, it it reminds me a lot of like if you're backpacking or, you know, doing any kind of climbing type thing. And that, you know, I know when I'm miles from or big game hunting, even when I'm miles from a trailhead, I'm really watching what I'm walking on. I don't want to roll my ankle. Right. That like just like vehicle sympathy when you're hundreds of miles in the middle of nowhere, you want to make sure you don't hit that rock or pothole or whatever it is to a degree that's going to jar your truck, maybe damage something. And then also Matt said, you know, when you're a quarter tank and you realize you can't turn around because there's no way to get back to where you last filled up and you're not sure how much farther you can go, just like when you're on foot, you might panic and keep and keep going and keep going. Maybe that's the time to go, you know what, I'm not going to make it out of here. I'm going to need help. So mm-hmm. save my fuel, make sure I can run my heater just make camp here and wait for the help I need rather than getting panicky and I got to find my way out, right? Yeah, a lot of these rescues and searches are the result of compounding problems. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, bad decision, a small bad decision was made and then another one. And then those two made another, built enough pressure to make another big one, you know, and then all of a sudden we're in a big problem, you know, but there was, you could almost on every single at least search or rescue, not necessarily rescue, because you can just have a bad day, you know? You can just, you can fall climbing and you had a bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, or 
A lot of times, though, there was a bad decision made and a bad decision, and it wandered you into the point where you had to hit the SOS button. Yep. So try to head Avoid that off. That. <laughs> good judgment, yeah, right? Good judgment. All right, guys. Well, this has been a fantastic podcast. I I know that our audience will have learned a lot once they've listened to this. So thank you for your time, Matt. Clay, always thank yeah. you for your time. You're a busy guy here at EXO with tons going on. So especially with Nordic coming up soon, yep. really appreciate you taking the time to do this and helping people out. Well, you bet. And uh, so, so some quick resources, obviously Onyx Maps is uh, helping us out with this podcast and to this topic today. Uh, they are an incredibly good resource to help you on your phone. Thanks for the, your support on X with this and for everyone out there listening and supporting X Overland. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Matt, I'll see you on the next Star Call. You bet, man. <laughs> Probably in the next half an hour. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. We said it. Wait, no. I think you got a call. Yeah. Oh, that's how it works. It's been quiet. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you next time. Ciao. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps. We appreciate your support. And until next time, stay adventurous. Yeah.